From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. Today's guest is Wyatt Cenac, the host of Wyatt Cenac's Problem Areas, a television series now in its second season on HBO. In the show, Cenac mixes monologues, sketches, interviews, and documentary footage to address America's persistent social issues and to explore possible solutions. Satirical and informative, Problem Areas takes a wide-ranging look at policing in Season 1. Season 2, which is airing now, deals with education. You may also remember Cenac as a correspondent on The Daily Show from 2008 to 2012. We'll discuss his current show and his body of work mixing comedy and social justice. Wyatt Cenac, it's a great pleasure to have you with us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So let's start with problem areas. What compelled you to make this show, and especially why now? I think in making the show, one of the things that myself and my head writer, executive producer, Hallie Hagland, we talked about in our experience working at The Daily Show together was the news cycle so often you find yourself chasing it. And there are stories that you see, and because the news cycle kind of burns through them so quickly, you find yourself saying, well, wait, I wonder if there's more to that story. And, you know, when we talk about something like police reform and police accountability in the national conversation, there are moments where the rhetoric gets so heated that it feels like trying to even change something seems almost futile. And when you actually go into communities where people have been affected by something like police misconduct, you see that on the ground, those people are neighbors and they have to figure out a way to make the system work. And they may not always figure it out. It may not always be the way they hope it can be, but you see people trying and you see people actually doing the work. Well, and it's particularly unique, I feel like, for a comedic show to do such deep dives on issues. As you mentioned, spending a whole season, not just a whole show or a whole segment, but a whole season on education and on policing, getting far beyond the headlines to real deep dives. How did you decide on the topics that you wanted to go so deeply on? With policing, it was something that we had talked about early on. I think we thought about it and we were a little nervous on our side, Hallie and myself, thinking, well, we're in season one of a show and to try to tackle something like policing could be really challenging. Nobody knows who we are. Nobody will answer the phone when we call and say, hey, we're an untitled HBO show with Wyatt Sinek. Remember that guy? (laughs) So we were kind of like, well, maybe we should do something that seems a little, maybe a little easier to get our feet wet. And HBO, they were really supportive and I think believed in us when we maybe weren't as confident that we could do it. And they were fully supportive and I really have to give them a lot of credit for saying, no, no, we actually think it could be good and this is a conversation that people are having right now and to spend 10 weeks discussing it could be a really interesting thing, and you should go for it. Well, and by season two, certainly people were picking up your calls. I mean, you have an amazing roster of experts like Nicole Hannah-Jones and even Arnie Duncan, the former Secretary of Education. You sort of explicitly bring these experts on 
to discuss these issues. But I'm wondering from your part as the host, how much research do you have to do in order to prepare for these interviews and to host the show? There's definitely a lot of research. And I think a lot of credit has to go to our research department and our producers and the APs. And then the writers also do research. And so the first half of the season, on some level, it feels like a bunch of people in an office trying to work on a collective term paper. (laughs) I think what's nice to me about some of the people that I get to talk to, they know way more on these subjects than I do. And I would not try to pretend to be an expert on policing or on education. I'm just a ding dong who happens to be telegenic enough that HBO decided to take a chance on him. And so whenever I get to sit down with someone like Nicole Hannah-Jones or Jesse Agopian or Arnie Duncan or Diane Ravitch, it's an opportunity for me to ask questions. And so all those interviews are honestly just me having curious conversations with people and trying to learn. And I'll often come out of those interviews with new ideas and new questions that I'll bring to the writers, the researchers, the producers. And those can sometimes send us off in directions that we hadn't initially thought we were going to go down. Well, it's an interesting format as well, because it is clear that you're sort of learning along with the audience from these eminent experts. Was there anything that you've learned that was particularly surprising or noteworthy or any sort of stories that have stuck with you? I don't know about surprising. I think when you're looking at stuff, and especially stuff with education, what was interesting is how much of the things that we talk about that we would like to see in education, how many of those things have existed in education in the past. And I think about things, whether it's something like a school providing, you know, health checkups and dental care to students, especially to students in low-income and rural communities. There was a time when that was much more common. There was a time when school lunch, there was a little more care put around it. There were times when we thought about learning and educating kids, not just simply to have them focus on standardized tests, but to follow creative pursuits. And so I think to me, what's interesting is to see that these things that we're talking about now, that people sometimes bristle at and say, well, that sounds radical and difficult and progressive to a degree that I don't want to move in. What's interesting is you look and you can say, well, well, no, this thing actually existed 30, 40, 50 years ago. And it's not that new of an idea. You may have even been the beneficiary of it. So why can't you extend that same basic decency to another generation? Well, it's interesting that you bring up the historical context of some of these deep problems. But when you're dealing with such complicated and troubling issues while also trying to be entertaining and even funny, I'm interested in how you conceptualize the balance of humor information on 
problem areas, and in particular, whether it's different or similar to how it was done on The Daily Show. I'm thinking of a particular example from season one, where you were addressing First Amendment free speech rights to protest and the importance of avoiding police brutality and excessive force when exercising the right to protest. And then from there, you cut to an ad for what you called a shoe koozie, which is for protesters whose feet might get tired. It's a shoe with a jacuzzi inside. So that juxtaposition of police brutality and the right to protest with the shoe koozie, how did you make that type of decision? To me, there's always been this relationship that exists in comedy where it is this balance of informing people and amusing people. You can go back through the history of comedy and you see that whether it was political satire as it existed in political cartoons or looking at comedians, whether it's Lenny Bruce or Dick Gregory or Richard Pryor or Joan Rivers or so many other comedians who had a unique voice and were basically using humor to get people to maybe better understand that unique voice. Joan Rivers was one of the first female comedians to be playing in nightclubs. And there is a sense of humor that she has to bring to that, but also a sense of informing people, these are the experiences of a woman as I stand in front of this crowd that's predominantly men. And you need to understand that so that you can laugh. And so I think for me with the show, we always try to be aware of how much are we informing and how much are we amusing. I think some of that roots back to The Daily Show and The Daily Show, so much of what we did and so much of John's ethos was we want to punch up rather than punch down. And so I think even if you're talking about something like protesting and thinking like, well, the challenges of protesting, when you have to do it a lot, you're going to be walking a lot and your feet are going to get tired. And I think having people on staff who have gone to their fair share of marches, we can talk about those things and sort of laugh about those things that, yeah, after a while, your feet do hurt. And there's maybe something that to an audience of people who have also shared that experience, they may find amusing and it might give a little bit of relief to what is a growing number of reasons to be outraged in this country and reasons to take to the streets and demand change. That's really an interesting way of framing it. Is that the goal of the show to both inform and then also provide relief? As you were speaking, I was thinking also about if there's any downside to people getting news and information from comedians. It's obviously a very powerful tool to draw people in and to give people relief, as you said. But do you see any downside to the approach that was taken by The Daily Show and other shows? And was any of that why you chose to structure problem areas the way you did? There is definitely a challenge if the idea is to simply be relief or to simply be a panacea for people's frustrations, that can create a problem if people then wind up feeling apathetic because they feel like I'm mad at the world and then I watched this show and I laughed about my problems and now I don't have to be mad anymore. 
I don't feel like our approach has ever been, all right, we're going to make you laugh and now you don't have to think about this anymore. The fact that we are spending 10 episodes on something, part of the design of that is to say, okay, we're not walking away from this. If you come back and you tune in next week, we're still going to be talking about this and you should still be frustrated by this. You can be amused by it too, but hopefully you'll look for ways to move the conversation beyond simply us giving you a, a chuckle on a Friday at 11 p.m. So as you said, the news cycle is feeding us horrible news on a daily, hourly, minute-to-minute basis. But a lot of the problems that you're talking about are also much deeper and longer term. So I'm curious how you think about the work of a sort of woke comedian during the Obama era when you were at The Daily Show versus now with the current administration and problem areas. Does it feel like a different job, this idea of informing and entertaining at the same time? Is there a different set of responsibilities in the current context? That's a good question. I don't know if I would consider myself a woke comedian. <laughs> I'll let someone else label me that. I don't know. I, I feel like... Well, socially engaged, at least. Yes. I mean, look, my background as a comedian, I would say, has always been in social commentary more than the political. Going back to my first stand-up album through all of the albums I've ever done, and then to the work I did on The Daily Show and now with Problem Areas, my focus has always been more on the social than the political. And I think regardless of who is sitting behind the Resolute desk, social issues are the things that don't really have a party affiliation. The conversations we're having around immigration today are also the conversations that some people were having during the previous administration and many people weren't having. There are things that you wish would happen federally to create some kind of sweeping reform, but we've seen regardless of the administration that hasn't happened. What you do see, and I think where it becomes a social issue, is when you actually get into communities and you get on the ground, you see the nuance that exists outside of a place like Washington, D.C., and outside of the cable news networks, whether it's legal defense teams going to the border to try and help migrants work on getting through their paperwork so that they could hopefully get sanctuary here, whether it's cities declaring themselves sanctuary cities and trying to build protections for people who work and live in those cities, whether it's just neighbors who see what the person next door is going through and trying to help and aid them in whatever ways they can, or schools doing that, where they're making sure that, okay, we know that this student might come from a family that's undocumented. What is it that we're going to do? Well, I really appreciate the distinction between the social issues and the political because it's quite noticeable that you're avoiding the sort of political back and forth but digging into these longer-term social issues. And one of the issues that comes up again and again in your work, not so much in problem areas yet, but in your stand-up and your web series and those sorts of things, is the issue of gentrification. 
You have a web series, a.k.a. Wyatt Cenac, where your character is a black gentrifier in Brooklyn, which resonated with me as a fellow black gentrifier in Brooklyn. <laughs> but thinking back to problem areas and the deep dive on policing, one of the things that really stuck out to me is that your character in A.K.A. Wyatt Cenac is a vigilante superhero. So he's at nighttime going out and he's a crime stopper wearing a very funny costume. Why did you decide to include a black crime stopper patrolling Brooklyn in your show? Was was it something about that character that you particularly identified with? I think with the web series, as somebody who grew up reading comic books and being a fan of comic books, there was a little bit of, if I were a vigilante crime fighter superhero, what would that look like? What would representation look like if I was the one who put on the mask and went out and did things. And so part of the thought was, yeah, the eight-year-old me who always thought it'd be cool to dress up like a superhero, there was that part of it. And then I think the other part was really trying to play with this idea of superheroes and vigilantes and crime fighting and what is it when you actually dig under the surface if you read comic books, so many comic books just kind of start with a bad guy robbing a uh, convenience store and then Iron Man or Spider-Man decides to come in and stop this mugger. And you don't really get into, well, what's going on? Why is this person actually robbing this place? What's the impact of all of this, what is the human cost to all of this, and what does it actually mean to say, okay, I want to be the one to keep my neighborhood safe, whether that's as a superhero or whether that's someone who's choosing to be a police officer, what does that actually mean and look like? Because there's a part of keeping your neighborhood safe that is restorative, and there's a part that's punitive. And I think, to me, with the web series, it felt like, is there a way to comedically check in with that idea of choosing the punitive approach, but choosing it outside of the police and what that looks like for someone who's a person of color who's doing it? Well, now that you mentioned it, it's really interesting to think about one of the unique features of the Viceroy, who's your vigilante alter ego, is that they, the Viceroy has a lot of conversations with the perpetrators, which is something that you don't see a lot, aside from the mega villains that are recurring characters. Just the random muggers who get apprehended don't tend to have a long conversation with the superhero. So that was a really interesting choice as well. Yeah, and I think that to me was trying to just inject a little bit of humanity into all of this, that these people aren't monsters and they're still people. Whatever choices they've made are the choices they've made, but how do you then weigh that and balance that and recognize the humanity of that person and also think about it with regard to, okay, well, this person's been strangling joggers in a park and then, oh, okay, that's a scary, weird person. But also when you start to talk to them and it's like, okay, they're just kind of a sad weirdo and... 
there is a connection point there. And perhaps maybe if we thought more about those connection points, if somebody had tried to connect with that person earlier, maybe they could have helped route them into a direction where they weren't a park strangler. (laughs) Humanizing the park strangler is a very heavy lift. But there was another scene also where there was a sort of young black man. I think, I can't remember if he was selling drugs or what the crime he was being stopped from was, but there's a sort of long social dialogue about the state of Brooklyn and all that sort of thing as the two of you sit on the curb and wait for the police to arrive. But I know you've talked about your sort of familiarity with Brooklyn, having grown up visiting Crown Heights as a kid, visiting your grandmother before Crown Heights was cool. And I can't help but ask in your... It was cool when my grandmother was there. (laughs) Sorry. My grandmother was pretty cool. I'm sorry. I don't mean uncool. I mean, it wasn't hip and all over the blogs. All right. That's fair. Yeah. (laughs) My grandmother didn't have a blog. (laughs) But so in the closing credits of your special, which was entitled Brooklyn, there's a shot of a place called the Tip Top Lounge. Have you actually been there? I have, yes. So I want to ask you about your experience there because Tip Top, for those who are not familiar, is a very old neighborhood bar in what was for a long time uh, predominantly African-American and Afro-Caribbean, and I guess African also neighborhood in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, and now is heavily populated by, you know, hipsters. A lot of white folks have moved into the neighborhood. And I had the really strange experience of going into that bar with some of my friends who were in the white hipster category and seeing these sort of black retirees hanging out in their bar as they have done for decades and feeling deeply uncomfortable. Have you had those types of similar experiences where you think we're really sort of invading a space in a way that's problematic? Yeah. I mean, for me, when I've gone into Tip Top, there's another bar, Frank's Lounge. They both feel like auntie and uncle bars to me. Exactly. They feel like the places where, yeah, If I were to go in there, an aunt of mine would grab me by the ear and all of a sudden I'd be 16 again and she'd just be saying, what are you doing in here? (laughs) Exactly. It's not even that I don't feel welcome, it's that I don't feel comfortable there because it feels like it's their space and I feel of a generation that shouldn't be there. I wonder if for young or youngish white people, if they feel a similar thing, if they were to walk into like a divey Irish bar, if they would share that similar, this feels like an auntie uncle bar that I feel with a place like Tip Top. And I wonder if that's the case, if that's perhaps why they may feel more comfortable in a place like Tip Top. I can't say that whenever I've gone into a divey Irish bar, I feel more comfortable. I, I feel. <laughs> I was going to say, we feel uncomfortable there for another set of I reasons. I feel way less comfortable. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like that is the consciousness that people move through and is unique, obviously, to both the collective experience of one particular race, but also the individual experience that people have. What I also recognize is a space like that is in a neighborhood that is struggling with rapid gentrification and at some point it becomes this weird kind of question that you start asking yourself of is it good that they're getting this business and they're getting some cash before their landlord ultimately makes the rent 
so expensive that they have to pack up and move out and then the bar will be bought out by someone who can afford to be there who will perhaps keep the name and some of the memorabilia on the walls as kitsch is that better than them having that space and being able to keep the space with the small clientele that is growing ever smaller as people get pushed out and then they get pushed out too and so yeah it just kind of raises all of these questions that i feel like i know i don't have the answer for and i mean i think on one level it maybe speaks to a larger conversation about just how resources get allocated throughout cities that perhaps if there was better resource allocation there wouldn't be neighborhoods that fall into economic blight to the degree that they do that you see gentrification come in as the only way to have any sort of urban development yeah i mean it's definitely a complicated push and pull and as you said tip top lives to fight another day for better or for worse but this theme of the complicated dynamics of gentrification and race that you pick up in Brooklyn was also evident in what is probably my favorite thing that you've done, which is Medicine for Melancholy, which is a 2008 movie directed by Barry Jenkins, who also later did Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk. My wife and my first date was to Medicine for Melancholy. Uh, but the mo- Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a special You're place in our You're welcome, man. <laughs> I appreciate it. Barry and I are the reason you're married. Thank you very much for saying that, Emerson. I really, really no appreciate it. And my two kids owe it all to you as well. And I hope those children's names are Barry and Wyatt. <laughs> if only, if only. Then this phone call is over. <laughs> this conversation is over, sir. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that struck me about Medicine for Melancholy is that you seem to be really ahead of the curve. This was a movie about black hipsters in San Francisco. It felt very different from anything else around. And this was talking about gentrification in San Francisco in 2008. Of course, in 2019, we're so many pages past where we were then. And the things that activists were worried about have come to fruition and then some. And I'm wondering how, do you consciously try to pick projects that provide this kind of alternative narrative or highlight underanalyzed issues? Well, I mean, with Medicine for Melancholy, most of the credit for that has to go to Barry. Barry wrote that script and directed it, and I was just kind of a fortunate passenger to be on that trip. And you got to ride a fixie all over San Francisco. I, I, I did, although I think we started on a fixie, and then I switched to, I think I was on a single speed, but a freewheel <laughs> single speed. My fixie skills are not good. I get tired real fast. I don't even stop. I just kind of like jump off the bike and let it crash. (laughs) But as far as the projects that I've done, whether it's my stand-up, whether it's The Daily Show, whether it's Problem Areas, to me, there's always been this element of using comedy and using creativity as a way to have a conversation about something. And I don't know if I could do something without putting some sort of conversation piece in the work. I've always been curious to have conversations with people about things and to talk about issues 
that's always going to be, that's always been something that's been a part of the work that I've done. I think even if I've done something that's lighter or sillier, on some level, I can't help but add something to it. You know, if I go see a Marvel movie, there's a part of me that can't help but think about what the racial implications of it are or what the social implications of it are. Well, the unique perspective that you bring and the connections that you draw, I mean, I appreciate them and I know a lot of other people do too. And it begs the question, what's next? Either for season three of Problem Areas or any other projects that you have on the horizon. Is there anything you're particularly interested or excited about doing next? Right now, we're still finishing up season two. And so my focus is really there. It's I'm very fortunate in that I get to make a show that is something I've wanted to do for a long time. And it's a lot of the things that have been kind of knocking around in my brain for a while. As soon as season two's over, I'm going to sleep for a week and then I'll maybe start thinking about other stuff. Well, fair enough. So we can all at least look forward to the rest of season two on HBO of Wyatt Sinek's Problem Areas. Wyatt, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure to talk to you. It was great to talk to you as well. And thank you for naming your two children after (laughs) Barry and I. Little Barry and Little Wyatt will be so pleased to hear their names on the radio. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It really means a lot to me. I'm sure it means a lot to Barry. I'm assuming the wedding was a medicine for melancholy-themed wedding. I assume that every anniversary you all just watch the movie 24 hours straight. You know, you don't have to answer because I, I I don't want it to be weird or anything like that. But Well, you're giving me some good ideas, if nothing else. Uh, okay, yeah, because it would hurt. If you were to say, no, we, did, we don't do any of those things, and we would never name our children Barry and Wyatt. <laughs> They're great names. Wyatt, thank you. We appreciate it. No, thank you. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace. Peace.